Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Although Florida has become the new epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States, its public schools are scheduled to open in weeks under a push from Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who's been touting the need for in-person in-person instruction. Some school systems are planning to open as soon as next week. The safety of school children has become a concern of parents across the nation. They're afraid to send their children to school, but keeping them at home may mean a loss of income and a fear that their children will become too isolated. So how are other countries handling the new school year? Uh, and uh, can they provide some insights into how to reopen our classroom safely? Bob Spires, a scholar of comparative international education at the University of Richmond School of Professional and Continuing Studies, tackled those questions in an article titled, How Other Countries Reopened Schools During the Pandemic and What the U.S. Can Learn From Them. In it, he compares the experiences of four countries where K-12 schools either have stayed open through the pandemic or have since resumed in-person instruction. His article appeared in the July 22nd edition of The Conversation, and I'm very pleased that it brings Bob Spires to our show now. Welcome. Hi, Leonard. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Where did you get the data for this article? Well, um, uh, a combination of different things. Um, you know, most countries have uh, a Department of Education or a Ministry of Education that has some information. Um, others, uh, there, there have been a limited number of studies around the world that have been uh, going on since really the beginning of the year or maybe late 2019. Um, but again, our information remains um, uh, kind of disparate. Uh, so, so we really have to be uh, looking at a variety of different sources, everything from investigative journalism to academic studies to departments of health um, and, and everything in between. And what countries did you look at? Well, um, I, I uh, narrowed it down. There, there are quite a few out there, but I felt like there were sort of some typologies that I could, I could draw from the four that I included. Um, I looked at Israel. I looked at uh, Sweden. I looked at Japan. And I also looked at Uruguay because each of those seemed to have um, some components that really spoke to what's going on here in the United States. And, and, you know, everyone is grappling with, with these issues. Um, the, the one difference when you're looking at these different countries is just that um, uh, compared to the United States, where we have more local control um, and, and state control of schools for those decisions, um, these other countries often have a national level response, and the decision making is, is made across an entire country. When did Israel open its schools? Well, Israel originally um, closed down uh, very, very quickly um, and then uh, then opened very quickly as well. Um, and so what what happened was they uh, they reopened in May. Um, but what what? It, yeah. So so fascinating kind of a case study there is that uh, Israel did shut down very quickly and and early on in the pandemic was was sort of. Um, uh, speaking out about how well they had done in controlling the virus and con controlling outbreaks. So that prompted the, the, the ideas that, hey, we should just open back up. And, and they did. 
Um, and and I'm a, and a restricted of movement. Did, did they restrict movement and, uh, and mandate masks? Uh, not not particularly. They, they, they did not uh, mandate them. They encouraged them, um, kind of similar to what you might see in some of the states in the United States. Um, and there were some arguments about that at the uh, national level in the uh, their ministry of education and in their health um, ministries saying we should be a little bit more strict. Um, and then what what ended up happening is people, because the message was we've gotten this under con control, there was a bit of a, a lackadaisical attitude, um, or at least that's what some of the health officials argued, that uh, people sort of said, oh, this is over. Um, so, so schools opened back up, uh, you know, people flooded into cafes and those sorts of things. And then, of course, um, uh, some outbreaks happened. It also coincided with a heat wave in May. Um, and you can imagine, um, you know, uh, Israel is, is, uh, can, can be kind of warm. And so mm -hmm. that heat wave combined with people not particularly excited about wearing masks kind of converged um, to, to make for some, some factors that really contributed to more outbreaks. Now, many schools in the United States are planning to have staggered schedules with no more than 50% of the children in, in their classes at any one time. Didn't Israel also have a staggered schedule? Um, they had they had a, uh, a, a somewhat staggered schedule in some places, but it was inconsistent. Um, it, what what we ended up seeing was uh, a very quick uh, reopening, even with the with the with the uh, stagger, um, the quick reopening, even though it was over a couple of weeks, um, that ended up meaning that there were a lot more people in the buildings at once. Um, in, in places like Japan, they've gone to a staggered schedule that's not necessarily slowly reintroducing students which is, is some people's sort of envisioning of a staggered schedule is that you might start slowly and over a month period, uh, eventually you get everyone back in the building. Japan's uh, approach was more um, alternating days for students. So maybe 50% of the students come on certain days, the other 50% of the students come on the other days. And we've That's seen some American states. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say what you're about to say, that that, that uh, approach is being adopted in some American states. Absolutely. Um, Japan has had a really good track record. Of course, there have been some little minor um, outbreaks, uh, but uh, nothing nothing widespread. Um, and, I, and I think as we're learning more about how this um, this uh, is transmitted, uh, there was recently a study just a few days ago Looking at a uh, at a, um, uh, a high rise building in South Korea where there were two different offices on the same floor. One office had an outbreak and another didn't, and um, they really attributed it to uh, one of the offices being a call center where everyone was talking. Um, there was a lot of uh, you know air circulation going on in there, and the other just sort of being a, a, a standard office where everybody's in their cubicles and they're wearing masks. Um, and so uh, there, there, there may be a lot of merit to that idea of ha having a reduced number of people, but also being mindful of that air transmission component. Now, getting back to Israel. Um, 
Yeah, did uh, children or teachers get sick? I mean, how many yes. people in the uh, school system were sick? There were obviously more teachers. I'm sorry, just repeat that for yeah. me, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you said there were more teachers. So what's happening now? Yeah, but there were children. Is really school still open? Um, they they are, but they've uh, they've they've uh, gotten a little bit more strict since that uh, that initial opening, and uh, I don't I don't know that they really had a choice. There were there was uh, there was a uh, uh, there were quite a few leaders that spoke out against that approach. Um, there's been now more uh, communication at the national level, um, explaining what those outbreaks look like and what the numbers are looking like. So there's been a bit of damage control um, since that May reopening, and since they've had some more outbreaks, they even lost. Uh, you know, some some of the leaders quit, um, resigned from their posts um, because of that. And so all of that kind of contributes to the fact that now Israel's taking things a little bit more seriously. And uh, and sadly, um, that's that's sort of where we're all at, right? We we uh, get these these messages. That uh, oh things are okay or oh no things are, are are getting worse and we're all sort of sorting through these various messages and so um, it ends up being um, that some of the leaders then are, are really really forced to make really tough decisions um, in schools. Uh, Mohammed Khatib, uh, an epidemiologist on Israel's National COVID nineteen Task Force, said Israel reopened too soon. He said that the return exactly. to conservative control measures was too little, too late. Uh, we're, we're seeing something happening similar here, aren't we? Florida, Texas, Alabama, many we other are. states reopened many businesses quickly, and then uh, were forced to go back to rather uh, to, to rather strict control measures. Exactly. And um, uh, having lived in Georgia, it's a similar situation in Georgia right now. They were one of the first states uh, to reopen. Uh, and ha now that I live in Virginia, it's been interesting to compare and contrast those two uh, different approaches. But Georgia has had, a, had an explosion of cases, uh, in, some in very concentrated areas, the same in Florida, um, you know, and, it, and it's a, uh, con a converging set of factors. Uh, that, that are contributing to that in Florida. Obviously, they make a lot of their uh, their a lot of their economy depends on tourism, um, and then you have people going to the beaches in Florida. You know, they've been um, they've been locked down. They've been in quarantine. They're getting um, itchy to to have some fun and relax. Um, they're going to the restaurants. They're going to the bars. They're going out onto the beach, and oftentimes in very on very crowded beaches. Um, and then that's that's when uh, w when we see those transmissions take place is when people are at really yeah. in crowded situations. They're not wearing the mask. Um, they're not uh, they're not social distancing. And so when you have a combination of all of those factors going together, um, I think it makes for a really bad situation. And Israel has some very nice beaches as well. Um, it has sixty thousand cases. It has 60,000 cases, 6,674 per 1 million people, which seems rather small when you compare it to Florida, which has over 430,000 cases and 19,735 cases per 1 million. Um, so, but uh, uh, is it 
I was wondering, is it possible to have strict enforcement among kindergartners? <laughs> this is the big debate. And if you've uh, watched social media, there are plenty of uh, elementary primary school teachers that have some uh, very entertaining memes about how this is all going to go with kindergartners. Um, there are a couple of factors that, we, you know, just like everything else related to this is that there is, there's a really a complex set of issues going going on at once. Um, we do have some fairly reliable information that younger children aren't as affected uh, by this by this virus. So that may be working in the favor of the younger children. Um, however, we aren't really sure as to whether they are going to be uh, vectors for spreading that to their family members um, and and anyone that they come into contact with. We are seeing that the middle and high school students are more likely to contract and exhibit some of the, the more serious symptoms. And then of course, the spreading of those things. But um, uh, obviously we also have to remember that there are no kindergarten classes where there are no kindergarten teachers. <laughs> mm. So we have to also take into account that in addition to the, kinder, the, the, the typical kindergartner uh, maybe taking their mask off, shooting it across the room, trading with a friend because they like uh, their friend's logo on their mask versus their own. Um, they're also in the same room with with uh, teachers, with paraprofessionals or teachers' aides. Um, they're going to be, you know, in and out of various settings in a school. And so there's a lot to really take into account if you're going to, to have these, uh, you know, especially large numbers of children um, in the same building together. Uh, because it's not quite as simple as saying, "Oh, young children aren't ex aren't experiencing the bat the the negative symptoms." Um, they're, they're they're never going to be in isolation and existing in a vacuum. You mentioned that some people have left. Uh, Siegel Sadetsky, the public health director for Israel, resigned. What about teachers uh, in America? We have a number of teachers unions threatening to strike. Uh, have teachers been quitting in Israel as well? Well, I haven't seen uh, as much of that on social media, but there may be um, in the non-English speaking um, media that's out there. I, I only have access to the, to the English speaking media. Um, and oftentimes you'll see the local uh, media is really where teachers are voicing their opinions. Um, here in Virginia, we have a very strong statewide organization um, that that has been instrumental in making sure that uh, teachers' voices are heard, and that's really been crucial. To be perfectly honest, here as a, as a statewide um, push to be very diligent about opening schools. Um, again, we run into the same issue in in education um, that in the United States, it's really a state and a local decision-making process. And the federal, the federal uh, level doesn't really have much say in whether schools open. Even at the state level, um, it becomes problematic for a, uh, for a state level governor um, or a, a, a secretary of education, so to speak, um, uh, to make a decision for the whole uh, because of the way that our schools are funded and the way that our schools are organized. So what we've ended up seeing in a place like uh, Virginia is that at the local division or district, so whether that's a city um, or whether that's a county, um, that's where the decisions are being made. 
Um, and those those leaders oftentimes aren't people that are uh, that have a background in public health. They may not even have a background in education. So a local school board may be local leaders from the community. They may be um, politicians. They may they may have an education background, but they have to then take into account the voice of the parents, the voice of the school leaders, the voices of the teachers, the teachers' unions. Um, and so it's uh, it's an overwhelming job that uh, uh, probably a lot of them are wondering if they uh, signed up for the right thing. <laughs> yeah. They might be well, wanting to uh, change their mind at this point. Um, but what well, we've seen just, here is that the majority of the school divisions and those leaders have decided to go virtually here in Virginia, which is, uh, I think, the right choice. Well, the president has threatened to withhold funds to states that don't open their schools, but it's been pointed out he doesn't have the power to do that. That's a whole other story. Uh, my guess is Bob <laughs> Spires. Uh, we're talking about uh, his article, How Other Countries Reopen Schools During the Pandemic and What the U.S. Can Learn from Them. It's in the July 22nd issue of The Conversation. Uh, the, the uh, Sweden probably is the most controversial of all the countries that you've written about. Uh, were the schools ever closed in Sweden? Uh, no, they weren't. They really took a, a more laissez-faire approach um, to uh, to the virus, not just in schools, but just across the society. Um, uh, they recommended uh, social distancing and masks, but not mandatory. Um, and and uh, they haven't really had major outbreaks, uh, so it's a it's a fascinating situation in, in Sweden. Um, what they uh, what they did was that uh, they did allow the 16 and older students, so that older age group, um, did uh, stay home and do remote learning. But the younger folks, um, really the vast majority of the school age students. Um, uh, went went to school. Um, not only did they go to school, but they actually mandated that the, that the parents continue sending their kids to school. Parents um, and there were worried some, that they would be punished if they refused to send their kids to school, even even if their kids absolutely. had pre-existing health conditions. Well, they would allow you to to kind of a petition. Um, you know, if you had specific issues, but um, the in other words, the compulsory education laws were still in effect throughout the, the pandemic. Um, no. So uh, I'm so in the United States, the comparison would be, you know, sort of truant officers and those sort of uh, hmm. people and, and juvenile courts that get involved when a parent doesn't send their kids to school. Um, that that was applying all the way through uh, in, in Sweden. And some parents feared that if they didn't send their kids to school, they, they might lose custody of them. Was that a, a real possibility in, in very liberal Sweden? Well, um, yes. Uh, there, at least on the forums that I read from parents, there was a, there was a real fear. Um, I, did not, I did not find any actual cases. Um, where the government did remove a child, but um, again, um, it it may be a factor of the same same issue that you mentioned, where uh, the, a federal government agency is sort of making threats that they can't really back up, or they don't have the the infrastructure to actually enforce. Um, so I, I I'm really unclear on that as to whether uh, there were real cases or whether it was really just a message. 
um, that was propagated. It was reported recently that the infection rate among Sweden's school children was no better or worse than its neighbors. This just goes against everything that I've understood about the transmission of COVID-19. Um, how did Sweden escape <laughs> what everybody else is, uh, is, is dealing with on a very serious level? Is it, uh, I mean, they're, they're close to Norway, which has a whole bunch of different rules. Right. Right, exactly, and and uh, you know part of that is just the uh, the the fact that uh, a country like Sweden is is not particularly highly populated. Uh, the cities aren't particularly dense. Um, in schools, the schools are also not particularly crowded. So compared to uh, maybe uh, you know some some extremely large schools you may find in. Um, in the United States, uh, where you have high schools of several thousand students, um, Sweden is a, is, a, is a much more low, lower population, um, and and even um, even the school days um, look a little bit different, so that the students aren't necessarily crammed in rooms uh, of thirty or more students for long periods of time. Uh, so a lot of those factors that we we often don't talk about um, do do play into this issue. Now, Sweden has about a million students in its schools. That's slightly less than New York City's public school system, which has 1.1 million children. Uh, can New York City have similar experience? Yeah. I don't think so, honestly. Um, yeah, we have 1.3 million in Virginia alone. So um, I, I, I think that's the the challenge with trying to do some of these comparisons is that when you're talking about a countrywide um, system of education that has fewer students than most of our states, it's really difficult to do those comparisons. So what we can't do is do sort of lockstep copy and paste comparisons. We have to compare the, the individual components. Um, and so what, what about that context is useful for us to understand and what about it is really not comparable to a major metropolitan area like like New York uh, metro area. And you did, there were still 1,000 kids who contracted uh, COVID-19 in Sweden. Um, how, how do Swedish yes. school children get to school? Do they take public transportation in Stockholm or do they uh, go in school buses? Well, I think um, I think there there is public transportation available, but um, unlike the United States, where we have, you know, uh, the vast majority of students are, are getting uh, school bus to the schools, um, that's really not the case in Sweden um, as much. You have a lot more children walking to school. You have students biking to school, and that sort of thing. And in a lot of areas in the United States, we've really kind of even pushed away from that. Um, uh, so particularly in, in the suburbs where the, there's a lot of sprawl and you might have people coming in from many, many miles away into these large uh, suburban schools, uh, busing um, is, is kind of required in order to be efficient and to bring that many students into one place. Um, so again, it really becomes difficult to compare um, in, a, in a place like, uh, like Sweden where you have a much smaller population and it's much more, um, much less dense compared to a place like uh, like New York City, where the schools, uh, you know, you have you have millions of of school age children 
uh, moving back and forth in a day um, over a much smaller area and in a much more tight, um, tight environment. And you mentioned Japan. Japan is much more densely populated, uh, and its approach exactly. was more stringent than other countries. Was was there ever a lockdown? Is there mandatory mask wearing? Yes, uh, but again, uh, we always have to remember that these these issues are much more complex. Um, in in Asia, where I've spent quite a bit of time uh, doing my own research, wearing masks. Um, is is uh, there is no um, you know uh, stigma to that, so no. so uh, getting the community to wear a mask is not really a problem. Uh, most people wear masks, especially in places like Tokyo um, or other major metropolitan areas, um, not only for illnesses but just because of air quality. So wearing a mask um, in this case uh, really really benefited Japan because uh, despite being much more crowded scenarios, um, the, the general public just accepts the fact that you need to wear masks. Um, there was recently a, a, a post, um, a report of, of the, the you know, well-known subway system in Tokyo, which uh, is known for being extremely crowded, and they even have the attendants that will sort of force people into the yeah. train as the doors close. Um, and, and they really haven't had any um, outbreaks, and it's mostly because of uh, mask wearing. So we know that masks aren't, aren't foolproof. Um, we know that they aren't the only answer, but when used in combination, particularly in a, uh, a more tightly um, grouped together population, uh, they seem to be making a big difference. Now, Japan's uh, approach when it reopened was to have children attend classes on alternating days. So only 50% of yeah. students attend at any given time, which is a strategy many U.S. school districts are thinking of implementing. But Japan has had only 28,000 cases and just 228 cases per 1 million people compared to the United States, which has nearly 5 million cases and 19,000 per 1 million people. The, my statistics may even be a couple of days old. So can U.S. schools reasonably expect similar experiences uh, as Japan? No, I would say probably not. And part of that has to do with sort of community attitudes, parent attitudes, school attitudes. Um, in general, uh, the schools made a very uh, uh, um, explicit uh, approach to telling parents that um, that school was not going to be back to normal, that students were going to be socially distanced even in the classroom, even though they were going to be alternating, they were still going to be having what uh, in a lot of schools what they called silent lunch. So even the students weren't allowed to talk during this during their lunch periods. Um, and so uh, to, to uh, assume that an, an American school would be able to put those kinds of uh, policies in place very uh, consistently would, would be inaccurate. Um, so we, we have to also remember that it's not just that they alternated days, it's not just that they wore masks, but it's also sort of this general attitude of we've got to take this seriously. Parents, we expect you to take it seriously. Kids don't expect that this is going to go back to normal when you get to school. It's going to look different. Um, and I think because of the inconsistency across the United States and with that local control component, 
um, we can't expect there to be um, a, a consistent message across schools in the United States. Have, have people died uh, as a result of the reopening of the schools in Japan, uh, students or teachers? I haven't seen any deaths uh, data that has been tra traced back, but there's definitely been, uh, been cases. Uh, there have been fairly small numbers. Of infection. Um, and uh, there, there has, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you, you say a number of cases of infections. Yes, yes. Um, but not deaths, not death cases that I've been able to see on the uh, in, in my own research. Um, but what I have seen is uh, quite a bit of um, displeasure over um, the way that you know. Obviously, people are going to be um, are going to have their own opinions about how these uh, these things work. Some people would prefer that their students can get back to. Um, you know, get back to normal socialization for a child their age. And that's obviously a, 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 an important factor, right? Um, so there, there are parents, there's a diversity of voices in Japan as well. It's not that everyone is lockstep. Um, but I think in general, the attitude was uh, to take this very seriously um, and uh, for to understand that it's not just about wearing masks, it's not just about um, dividing our students into varying days, but it's also about uh, taking those additional measures. Uh, did Japan implement temperature checks of its school children? Absolutely. So at every at every school, it's temperature checks before entering uh, and uh, and throughout the day. Another, uh, you know, another barrier there for American schools um, that even the temperature checks aren't a foolproof measure, right? We can't, we have to get away from that mindset that any one particular strategy is going to be, is going to solve the issue. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's very common right now for, um, for people to be complaining online about the temperature checks not being um, accurate. Um, especially, let's say you're you're having your your students line up outside the school, um, and then you're having them all take a, 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 a forehead temperature check. Well, it, here in here in the south, um, that means you've got uh, a line of students that are lining up outside in the uh, oppressive, humid heat of of the south. So mm -hmm. um, children are all registering with a temperature. Um, so it's it's definitely not a foolproof measure. It's um, it's one strategy to try to uh, mitigate infections, and probably as much as anything would be um, useful in the in the contact tracing side of things. Where if you have a student that did register for a uh, with it with a um, a fever, then that allows you to begin tracing where where who they had contact with. But we've also seen a lot of people being asymptomatic, still having uh, the uh, being infected. How effective are temperature checks with those people? Not not particularly at all. And we've also seen that um, that the temperature, I mean, that the symptoms, um, the, the, the patients or the the individuals that have been asymptomatic um, were largely children. So children are, uh, seem to be, from, from the research that I've read, seem to be more likely to be asymptomatic, but we still aren't clear about the young children, whether they're as likely to be an asymptomatic spreader of the, of the um, virus. Um, we, we do know that uh, the older children um, uh, seem to be on par with adults 
uh, teenagers particularly, but younger children, we still aren't really sure um, whether they're whether they're uh, shedding the virus at the same rate as adults, which is fascinating and, and not exactly like most other viruses. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We will continue right after this. And Alice Cooper did not know that there would be anything like a pandemic when he recorded that song. Before I get back to my conversation with Bob Spars, uh, I need to talk to you about something very important. Like, like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit hard by the pandemic. A lot of our, our longtime supporters have uh, suffered financially, and they've had to drop or suspend their support for the station, which is why we are asking anyone who is able to, in this time of crisis, to please step up and, and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio, listener-sponsored radio, and let it locate at large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is uh, by calling right now, 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602 or by going to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org. And joining us now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent, to tell you about a great way to support the station. Jesse? Hi, Leonard. Great to be here. And yes, as Leonard was saying, uh, we really need your support right now. Uh, you know, d people who know a little bit about the history of the station knows that we were knocked off the air for about a month with a coup uh, about six months ago uh, of, of some people. And we were able to uh, win in court uh, the, this faction of the Pacifica Network. Why am I telling you this? Basically, just to say we were already just just getting back on track and yeah. then the pandemic hit. So as you could imagine, this pandemic that's affected so many uh, public radio stations and television stations, pretty much all independent media hit us particularly hard uh, because we were uh, already in such a precarious position. So we really need all of our listeners to step up and help us get back on track and get some sense of stability. And the best way wait, to wait, give wait. the station that stability, what's that, Leonard? I was going to add, and uh, one of the other issues is that we are totally listener supported, unlike other public radio stations who could recover a bit because they take ads or uh, they get funding from foundations or uh, other organizations. We depend 100% on the support of our listeners. And that puts us in a rather precarious position. On the other hand, it allows us to not have to worry about 
getting anybody, anybody upset and, and losing a supporter. But, you know, we can talk about the Koch brothers uh, or now the Koch brother uh, and not have to worry that they're going to withdraw their funding. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Jesse. No, and in fact, I, I'm, I'm so glad you made that correction because I, I think there was a reference to the Koch brothers on yesterday's show, yeah. and I, I had the exact same thought. There's only one, although a formidable uh, Koch brother he is. Um, yes, what I was saying before is a great way to help the station get back on track, get back balanced again, is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. These are, as regular listeners I'm sure have heard me say, these are people who support the station every month, spread their support out throughout the year so they don't get hit hard at one time. So this is a monthly contribution automatically deducted by your checking account, from your checking account, your savings account, whatever's easiest for you from your credit card. Uh, you tell us, uh, and you you know this is a way that we can plan uh, for the future. You can stop anytime, but it's a way also of showing to the station management and the network management that this this is a show that you care about. That we have listeners who are supporting us, and and the the amount, although I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with this. It's it's irrelevant in some ways how much it is. Obviously, the station lives or dies by your generosity. Like Leonard said, we have no uh, corporate underwriters to, to to bail us out. So in one sense, the amount certainly matters. But what I mean is by simply saying this is the kind of programming that I want to support and make sure it continues, uh, that's, that's how – uh, we continue to build both as uh, a station and also as uh, as an entity onto ourselves, Leonard Lopez at large. We're really doing our best to continue to improve every day and make the show uh, continue to get better. And we have some very exciting guests uh, lined up that I'm, I hope you'll agree we're doing that. But the only way to keep it all going, this crazy experiment in public radio, is to call 516 3602 or go to the web at give to wbai.org that's give them the number two wbai.org and sign up whether to become a bai buddy or to to donate any amount you can uh if you are kind enough to see your way to making it in the name of leonard lopez at large that's the way that you say hey i i love bai or or even if you just listen to this show that is the way to say we want to keep hearing this man, Leonard Lopez at large, and the guests and the topics we're bringing you. I mean, Leonard, uh, I certainly, you know, when I saw uh, Dr. Spire's article at the conversation, how other countries reopened schools during the pandemic and what the U.S. can learn from them, I just thought immediately, why haven't I heard more about this? Why hasn't this idea been in the news more? I've certainly been listening to a lot of coverage about the coronavirus and rarely heard anyone doing this kind of comparative uh, study or, or at least just analyzing the, the, the other ways that, that the, should I say, the ways that other countries are solving this issue that is very much at the forefront of any parent's mind right now with children in school uh, and, or any just, teacher or any administrator, right? And, so we and, hope and, and, that this is the kind of topic you respond to. Yeah. And you may have heard about what's going on in Sweden or Israel or Japan, 
but not Uruguay, which Bob Spire is also <laughs> right about. So let me get back to Bob and find out about Uruguay because uh, Bob, you give it very high marks. Uh, it, it only has a total of 1,174 cases, about 300 cases fewer than Vermont, the, the US state with the lowest number of cases. What did they do right? Well, um, you know, Uruguay is, is kind of known as sort of a, a, a progressive flag bearer for um, South America and Latin America in general. Um, and so I, I don't think a lot of people that are familiar with Uruguay are would be particularly surprised. Um, there are quite a few things going for Uruguay that uh, set them up for success for this, um, this issue, uh, you know, the pandemic. Um, one, they have a very uh, well-organized and efficient public health system. Um, and, and not only is it, uh, is it efficient, but the public trusts it. Um, and, and here in the U.S., we, we have a different relationship with our, with our health system, right? And so that has complicated the, the situation here in the U.S., whereas in Uruguay, people just assume that the, the, the health system is going to be looking out for their best interests. The second is uh, a generally strong attitude, positive attitude toward uh, the government, toward the information that the government provides regarding um, the pandemic, you know, their, their rates and uh, tips on how to reduce the, the, the spread of the virus, all of that information coming from the government. Um, in general, um, Uruguayans uh, feel that that's something that they can trust. Um, and so, you know, we we're we're a we're a testier lot here in the U.S., right? We're we're a little more skeptical of information coming from the government or even from any any source. Um, so that complicates the situation here in the U.S. Um, but again, we can't uh, just assume that we can copy and paste Uruguay's uh, uh, approaches. We have to understand what about Uruguay made their uh, choices make sense and why were they so successful? Well, one. Um, you have uh, a, a much smaller population, which helps. Um, it helps that, uh, and you can see why a, a state like Vermont, that's a lot more rural um, and also a lot more progressive, is going to have a lower rate, right? In general, um, uh, you don't have as many people crowded into the, the city. Um, even, in, even in the capital, Montevideo, um, only a quarter of a million students are, are school age. Um, and so we were just mentioning that um, uh, in, uh, at the beginning of the show that, uh, you know, in Virginia, we have uh, over a million and in New York City alone, you have over a million school aged children enrolled in schools. Um, so that's a different kind of a component. What they did was they did lock down uh, fairly quickly. Um, they did uh, adopt some very early and fairly strict measures of social distancing and masks. The difference is that um, the, the population wasn't really particularly resistant to that, right? People were like, okay, we'll just do it. Um, so you didn't have, you didn't have the, people uh, demonstrating with don't tread on me uh, signs and, uh, and going into the, the local target and, and uh, destroying the, the mask display, things like that. Uh, exactly. And, you know, we, we for all of our independence and individualism, um, unfortunately, in a global pandemic, that has come back to bite us um, here in the U.S., uh, that when we look at these countries that have been successful, 
right? It was really a, uh, a an attitude that also contributed. And in Uruguay, there's a generally um, united attitude that all of us Uruguayans are to in this together. Um, and we, we see that um, in in some communities across the United States, but we also see some, uh, you know, we're, we're very politically divided right now in the U.S., and the timing probably couldn't be worse um, for us to be as divided when we really should be coming together, um, assuming the best of our, of our neighbors and our community members, and hoping that we're all just in it, in it together to solve this issue. Um, what we're seeing in our schools compared to Uruguay is that um, no matter what the decision is being made, the other 50% of the people um, that didn't get their way are, are, are really taking it out on each other. And so that creates this divisive environment in schools or around the topics of schools um, that I, don't, I think are, are fairly unproductive um, in, in this environment. So they, they did some alternating schedules. They did virtual instructions. They gave choices. Um, they do have schools that are very, very close to uh, Brazil, along the border of Brazil, which has had extremely high case numbers. And those rural schools haven't really had any problems. And in general, I, I would attribute at least some of that back to this uh, generally community-minded spirit um, and, and the sense that, hey, we should uh, work together to try to prevent the spread of this, this uh, terrible disease. So you describe their approach as a, first, as a phase approach, the rural areas first, yes. followed by students who lacked access to online learning going in, and then everyone in the capital going in. Uh, so is every, are all the uh, school kids now in the schools in Uruguay? They are. And in, uh, in, in many places, they're still doing the alternating schedules. Um, so, uh, so, so everyone is in the schools unless they opted for the virtual instruction. So, um, so that's, that's a different kind of an approach, right? Um, probably more students in the schools in terms of the per capita than, um, than other countries that have had bigger, bigger spread. Um, the difference is though, when you do that staged approach, you're able to sort of solve some of the minor problems as you go um, as a school or as a school division. So for instance, if you're only bringing back a small number of students, you can work out some of the kinks in terms of social distancing in the buildings. Um, you know, uh, you might hope that all of the children, all the school children are gonna go to the places that you want them to go in the building, um, but that's not always the case. So bringing it in in a staged approach allows you to kind of um, do it in a more scaffolded way where you can make some mistakes, but also um, you, you don't have people crammed in the buildings. Um, and so that, that staged approach has allowed people to, um, to, to, to do some troubleshooting, some problem solving, um, and, and, and allow them to, to uh, by the time all of the students have phased their way back in, um, you know, they, they've worked out some of the kinks. Um, one thing I would want to, uh, you know, would want to, to point out would be that, um, you know, because we haven't seen much in the media about this, I think it, it also is a converging set of factors that, you know, we, we, we had the pandemic really hit at the end of our American school cycle. 
and then we had summer vacation. So people kind of wrote it off. They said, you know, we shouldn't really have to worry about schools for a while. They, they got us through the end of the school year, and now we're going on our vacation either at home or we're going to go on an actual vacation. Um, and so how we're going to get back into schools was not at the top of everyone's priority list. And now we've, we've kind of dragged our feet as a nation to try to figure this out, and we're seeing, um, seeing such um, inconsistent uh, approaches across the country now that, oh, my goodness, it's the fall, and it's, it's summer vacation is coming to an end, and we've got to figure this thing out. Um, well, so that's kind I'm, of, I'm, uh, I think, contributing to what you guys mentioned. Well, uh, I'm sure that in Uruguay, the the uh, top politicians didn't say this whole thing is going to go away once the heat comes in. Uh, uh, we don't have to worry about it. Uh, Uruguay contained the virus effectively from the start. Uh, it took it seriously, I guess, uh, as you point out, the different kind of political system, different from its neighbor, Brazil, yeah. as well, which... Uh, uh, is a is a total disaster. So uh, I, I, I perhaps a uh, a country where there is a, a sense of of homogeneity uh, is also a factor. Uh, we don't have that in this country. What about you? Do you teach in a sure. classroom? Uh, so I taught public school for many years, and then I taught at a, a, a public university in Georgia for um, five years before coming to a private university here in um, in Virginia, um, the University of Richmond. And what I do is I train uh, mostly high school teachers, as well as do some. Uh, some I do, do teach some courses on my own research um, in international issues in education. Now, uh, a number of teachers' unions have been threatening to strike. What about the people you're talking to? Are they nervous about returning to the classroom? Are you nervous about returning to the classroom? Absolutely, yes. I think you would be crazy not to be at least a little bit concerned. Um, I, I, I would say absolutely the teachers that I speak with are very concerned um, because, you you know, you have to remember that, again, teachers don't exist in a vacuum, right? They're, they're the members of your community. They have parents, elderly parents. They have young children. Um, they, uh, you know, they, they come with all of the same things that everyone else does. And so their, uh, their professional, um, the, 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 the professional side of their disposition and their personality is not the only piece to them. Um, and so, yes, I, I see quite a few um, uh, teachers groups that are, uh, have pushed back. And in, here in Virginia, those, those teachers organizations have been instrumental in making sure that um, we at least began the school year, um, uh, which here in Virginia starts in early September, um, virtually in, in a large number of the school divisions across the state. Um, we also saw uh, teachers unions uh, or teachers groups, teachers voices in Georgia, where I uh, moved from recently, were actually instrumental in reversing um, large urban school divisions choices to go full-time face-to-face, um, we've seen some that have actually done a, a U-turn and have decided, no, we're, we're changing our mind, we're going to start virtually, and then we will um, assess the situation periodically, whether that's, you know, weekly, monthly, um, or whatever. Although that's so led to something of a war. It's led to something of a war between the governor and some of the mayors, including uh, Absolutely. now a court case uh, involving Atlanta. 
Yes, and, and several other cities actually across the state of Georgia, um, cities that put in place ma- uh, mandation, mandating mask use in public, um, and then that governor um, who has uh, uh, quite, quite a reputation um, has, uh, has, has actually taken them to court and uh, tried to undo their, their citywide mandate. So, yeah, very problematic, and obviously those things spill over into the schools, right? So, yes, there's quite a bit of divisiveness between uh, – and, again, there's not one, one unified voice. There are plenty of teachers that are so excited to get back to their classrooms with their students, uh, e- even with the risks they're willing to, to go back. And I think most teachers – I would say every teacher I've spoken with is, would be personally devastated to have to go virtually at the start of their school year. They miss their kids. Right. This is their lifeblood. This is what they uh, this is their calling. And so they want to be with their kids. They want to be with their students. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot more things to consider than just um, the, the need to be in person with with your students. And so you Bob, see a we're lot out of time. Really torn. We're out of time, unfortunately. Bob Spars is a scholar of oh, comparative no international education, University of Richmond School of Professional and Continuing Studies. He has written an article for the conversation, how other countries reopen schools during the pandemic and what the U.S. can learn from them. Thank you so much for being on our show. Hey, thank you, Larry. This has been a a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Susie Stoltz, who prepared today's interview, and to our executive producer, Jesse Lent, and live engineer Reggie Johnson for all of their work throughout the week. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And we are available as an iTunes podcast. You can check out Leonard Lopez at Large on Facebook and Twitter, and also our website, LeonardLopezAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And you can reach me uh, with your comments at LeonardLopez at WBAI.org. Org. That's our email address. Uh, we have pretty much no, not much more time, but I want to remind you that we hope that you will support the station by giving us a call at 516-620-3602 or going to give to WBAI.org and becoming a supporter of WBAI. We hope you'll join us on Monday when the University of Chicago uh, professor of psychology, Catherine D. Kinsler, will discuss her new book, How You Say It, why you talk the way you do, and what it says about you. Have a great weekend.